0: Welcome,
1: back. Welcome to Decision, Decision space, space, the only show to take place right here in the space between the turns in your favorite games. I'm Brendan Hansen. I'm Jake Friedman. And this is the podcast about decisions in games. Today, we're doing a what we talk about episode where we dive into a topic in games and talk about it. Uh, in a lot more depth than we typically do maybe in our game episodes. Maybe I shouldn't say a lot more depth. We go in depth in our game episodes as well. But we pull the the lens back and we look at a topic as broadly as we can and see if we can gain fresh perspective from looking at it through our lens of decision spaces. So today, we're talking about objectives in games and scoring objectives in games. We're going to leave you with a new way to think about these things three different ways that games present their scoring objectives. So when you finish this episode, you will have a whole new lens through which to look at games. Jake, are you ready for that? Are you excited? Are you doing
0: well? I'm so excited. You know, I'm always like, let's call this episode a new way to do this or a new way to do that. And Brendan's always like, no, 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 I can't say that. So, you know, when he's willing to do the new (laughs) way to talk about episode title, he's absolutely jazzed about, about what he's come up with for us. So I'm excited to learn more about this. I'm going to be learning along with the audience today um, as as we go through this topic. So Brendan, that's my role here. And I'm I'm ready for you to just kind of like drop some knowledge on me.
1: Yeah, I'm really excited for this. We've done this in the past. I think specifically we did an episode on types of decision spaces that people received really well um, and also on theme, which people receive really well and that there were people who loved it and people who thought it was the worst thing on the internet. So that's always awesome. Um, and today we get to talk about a really pivotal thing in games, which is objectives. So I was we're reading this book for our book club, Jake. Um, called Games Agency as Art. I know you know about this, but for the for the audience, it's by C. Tai Nguyen. It's this philosophy book about what games are and the type of art that they are. And one of the early chapters, I came across this segment. So it's written by C. Tai Nguyen, but it is about Reiner. It's something Reiner Kinesi is saying. And I think that'll frame our conversation of why we need this. Why do we even need a new way to think about objectives in games? Uh, can
0: I read it? Yes. Okay. The scoring system creates the motivation, says Kinesia, quoted in Chalky, 2008. Should I read that part? Yeah, why not? No, we can, the we can make sure it. We All right, cite- a, cite- We'll leave yeah. it in. All right. The, the scoring system tells you whether you need to collaborate or compete with other players. And the scoring system helps shape how the interaction will go. The goals combined with the game's mechanics tell us whether we are to manipulate our opponents or bargain with them, whether we are to cleverly profit off their action or simply attack them. A game's goals tells us what to care about during the game. When we play a game, we simply take on the goals it indicates and acquire the motivations that the game wishes us to acquire. Awesome.
1: Thank you, Jake. So this is this was a nice little nugget of surprise packed away in Tai Wins book that we're going to talk about on the show more in the future, uh, which I'm very excited about. And it's a sort of a side where he's talking about what what how do games how do players think about games um and i was so surprised to see him cite reiner knizia here though i shouldn't be um as c tai wing calls him the elder statesman of german board game design i think even this little piece was so insightful to me and kind of got my brain percolating of thinking about like is there a different way that we could think about objectives and really i wanted to read this and have jake read this today because goals shape a decision space and the exact same game with all the same components, even with the, all the same mechanisms, but different goals is a fundamentally different decision space, right? So you can have the exact same game with the exact same components, the bo- you put all the pieces back in the box, It's it's literally the same game. But if you change the objectives, you can completely change the game and change the decision space, which I think in some ways makes perfect sense. And in other ways, if you step back, is sort of profound.
0: Yeah, I think that maybe is worth kind of like unpacking with some examples for, you know, how that would work. So if I'm understanding correctly, that would be like a game of chess. But instead of checkmating your opponent's king, maybe you're trying to be the first to to place an, a piece on your opponent's back line or or something along that. Right. And that would fundamentally be not chess anymore.
1: Right. Exactly. But it might still be. If someone came into the room and saw you playing it, they might say, "Oh, you're playing chess," and you might say, "Kind of," um, even though you're playing with chess pieces on a chessboard, following all the same rules of chess, except for the objective is different. Or even to use a board game example, you could, you know, change all the scoring objectives in Welcome to and lay out what those new scoring objectives are. uh, Welcome to is a roll and write game where you're filling in these different roads, leave all the rules the same and just change the scoring objectives. And all of a sudden the game could be completely different. Maybe you don't want to be putting houses next to each other uh, and you're trying to put, I don't know, keep your houses as spread apart as possible and you can't have parks in the same row as you have pools or something. And and it's a different game. Um, So I think this is just important because it's a thought experiment to say that scoring objectives define games. That's that's how we as players, the first thing that we do when we sit down to play games, once we learn the rules, say, okay, what am I trying to do? It's how we understand how we approach a decision space. If at the end of the day, a game's decision space is just about navigating its mechanisms to, to find the objective, to get through the decision space to the end. So this is like, In some ways, it's shocking it's taken us this long to talk about objectives and try to approach it from sort of a zoomed out perspective.
0: Absolutely. I think that's a great point and probably level one for kind of getting into this, uh, which will become a deeper conversation. But it is interesting it's taken us this long since, you know, we talk about decisions as being, you know, meaningful choices in, in a game. And of course, the thing that is defining meaning in any game is. The ultimate objectives, how you how you're going to score, how you're going to win, uh, how you're going to defeat your opponents.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I I don't think we should. So that's why we're doing this. Um, and I think as someone who plays games, as a listener, you should fundamentally understand this, that objectives are intrinsically important to games. Um, So I don't feel a need to sort of dwell on them longer beyond saying that understanding objectives is paramount to understanding decision spaces. So if we can understand objectives better, we can understand decision spaces better and we can understand how we think about decisions in games and we can understand how we should approach playing games and how games might challenge us to think differently or solve problems in different ways. And then once we can do that, maybe we can think about how different systems in different games um, are compared in ways we may not have even realized because their objectives are structured in similar ways that on the surface, when you don't have this lens we're going to dive into, you might not even see. Just hidden from you it's like the lens of truth in zelda
0: i just thought about another example of, of uh, when i was a kid playing growing up playing soccer sometimes our coach would take goals out of the game entirely and say like in this drill you know you score a point once everybody on your team has touched the ball once nice or something right and it's uh it's, it can be a really interesting way to teach teach people about the game and, and learn new tactics as well by just shifting that somewhat. So anyway, yeah. that just came to me. So I wanted to throw it out there.
1: No, I love that. Well, I think, Jake, now is the best time. Let's get into what is our what is our lens. We'll talk about the sort of framework that we've thought of. We'll define these three terms that we have, these three ideas, and then we'll really delve into examples. But we're going to start broad. We're going to define these three terms, and then we'll go into examples. Um, and we'll sort of dwell on each one a little bit and then uh, expand from there. So the first one is the simplest. Uh, It's got to start at the beginning, and this is there are games where their objectives are solitary. They're either their scoring objectives, their win conditions, they're just a solitary goal. Um, So players' motivations are shaped by the pursuit of this sole objective. Uh, For example, having the most money at the end of Modern Art, a Renner Canizia game, or checkmating your opponent in chess. Solitary objectives provide direction to the players generally, but they're not providing tension per se. Uh, I think these games typically rely on their systems to create meaningful tension in the pursuit of these solitary objectives.
0: Totally. And I think this is like also basically all sports would fall into this. Um, and I think the the key line about uh, providing direction but not tension is... Uh, really illuminated by the sports examples. Like in soccer, again, uh, a common thing people would say is like the best defense is a good offense, Mm. right? And that's like, you know, all that matters, possessing the ball, going and scoring goals. So if you're doing that, you're, you know, as you're working towards that goal, you're also achieving everything you could want to be achieving in the game.
1: Yeah, I think that's really interesting, Jake. Like you've never seen a basketball court with three different hoops, right? Like there's... Like one hoop in the middle that provides some other objective that if you score in that middle hoop, it gives you a different benefit to doing that. So you structure everything about your turn, your possession with the ball differently. Like it's just not typically how sports play out.
0: It's so fascinating too, and not to linger on this too much, but you know, maybe there's something to this, which is why so many Mm. people might bounce off of a rules explanation if they're totally unfamiliar with games, because as we'll talk about more so common in board game are other types of uh, objectives. Yeah. Uh, um, right. So if if you're saying, okay, we are playing this game and you'll get points from this and this and this and this, and all there's these other things over here to watch out for. And, you know, if this happens and you lose the game, it's like, whoa, like I don't understand this at all. Right. I'm familiar with solitary objective games, you know, get the most points win the game. Yeah. Period.
1: One, So now we're going to pivot into this next example, and though I wasn't going to go here now that you've brought up sports, it strikes me that American football is a great example of having this type of objective structure, and that's a juxtaposed objective. So pursuit of one goal in the game, one objective, comes at the opportunity cost of pursuing another. Um, So you're doing this or you're doing that. So I'll, we'll get into board game examples, but in what no, I was talking about sports. With sports, only sports, sports on the show <laughs> about board games, <laughs> uh, is American football, right? Where you can kick field goals or you can try to score a touchdown. So you only have four uh, four possessions. No, you have four, what are they? Quarters. Cultures? No, no, no. When you have the oh, ball, four you downs. Have four downs in your possession. Um, so once you get, you know, it's fourth down, you're close. To, you could definitely kick a field goal. You could go for it. Or you could try to convert and score a touchdown. That's an example of a juxtaposed objective in a sport. Somehow
0: I think that the uh, American football example might be even more convoluted in many cases than like the heaviest board games.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I want to ask you why, but I don't want us to get bogged down in football.
0: I just mean, like, I don't know if we're making the conversation more accessible by talking about American yeah, football, which yeah, sure, sure, like sure. notoriously like just an incredibly convoluted and complicated yeah, yeah. sport.
1: Not to mention that like at least sixty percent of the people who listen to our show do not live in the United States. Exactly. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, but in the nature of games, um, I think it's very simple, right? When you're doing, when you're, pre- when a game presents juxtaposed objectives, um, whether it's scoring objectives or win conditions. Um, you have to. The game, in some ways, becomes about picking the correct path, right? Because if you go for objective A and you can't then do objective B in the game, you better make sure when you make the decision to really pursue objective A that you're making the right decision in going down that path. So, to I think doing juxtaposed decisions well in a game, and they can be done poorly really easily. Um, it has to be about creating um, meaningful and interesting decisions around trade-offs where doing this now might provide a benefit or might be right for your position versus waiting and doing something else later. Doing juxtaposed scoring really poorly can create what Jake and I on the show call uh, decision spaces with lots of choices, but not many interesting decisions, right? If all of my choices are are vaguely the same and they're all these different juxtaposed objectives, then it doesn't really matter what I'm doing if my pursuit of each of them gives me about the same amount of progress. There has to be a, a meaningful and interesting decision around why I would pursue one of these juxtaposed objectives versus another, Um, And it has to be rewarding to make those decisions.
0: And I think too, it has to be sufficiently like a fair trade-off, right? Or else it's, again, it's just going to be an obvious choice. Like you can imagine a game where, you know, okay, you can spend gold for a three points to one exchange rate over here, but by taking a different action, you get five points per one piece of gold. And again, that would be, juxtaposed right if i'm understanding correctly, it would totally
1: be juxtaposed
0: if you do one you are taking away the opportunity of doing the other however it's not really a, a strong decision because you would always choose the one the the better value
1: Yeah, definitely. We've talked a lot about this in our Discord some too, as we've just been advancing this conversation and putting these ideas together um, with the fine community there. And I think one really good point made by a member of our Discord, Uptmanity, was that with juxtaposed decisions, it can't just be, should I do this or should I do that? There has to be inertia within the game systems that drives you towards one type of scoring objective or another, right? And there also needs to be opportunity cost or consequences for picking one or strong incentives for maybe not picking one. And I think a lot of these games tend to playing them well becomes about not committing to a specific path until the game pushes you into committing completely, right? Until your opportunity cost of committing becomes too high. Where if committing too early, you might end up in a bad position, it behooves you not to do that. So there's really, really good board game examples for juxtapose decisions uh, that we're going to get into. I'm really excited about this one. And sort of my core originating game of this idea that gave me this spark came from uh, comparing juxtapose objectives with our next one, which are overlaid objectives. Um, overlaid, this is our third bucket, overlaid objectives are goals that can pr- be pursued at the same time. Um, so there there isn't necessarily an opportunity cost because you're not doing this or that. With overlaid goals, you're doing this and that at the same time. So a strong action in these games is going to likely push players towards multiple objectives at once. So efficiency in these games doesn't come from choosing the right path. Efficiency comes from maximizing the total progress of your actions towards all possible goals. I definitely think that that's a good way to think about it. I don't think all games where you can sort of kill two birds with one stone necessarily have overlaid objectives, but I think it's a good start. Point salad games, I think, are usually overlaid. And I think overlaid scoring objectives introduces or amplifies the importance of efficiency just in general with regards to every action. Because everything you're doing needs to be maximizing what you're doing towards those scoring objectives each turn.
0: Yeah. I know we're going to talk about examples just here in a second, but like for the audience, the first thing that came to my mind when you described this uh, was Praga Kaput Ragni a game Mm. that we've covered on this podcast uh, where it feels like every time you do a single action in the game, it is like, there's like sort of a wall a waterfall of, Uh, benefits that cascade off of that right you put down a building you're moving up the building track you're getting some benefit from the building itself and perhaps like also creating a a seal by matching with another equal color covered seal so you know by getting that building you're literally advancing three separate objectives at a single time
1: Yeah, I think Praga Kaput Ragni, the Vladimir Suchi game is a great example of this. I think also the fact that that game has these two sort of um, buildings that you're working on, the Hunger Wall and the Cathedral and moving up the Cathedral helps you score points for the Hunger Wall and moving up the Hunger Wall helps you score points for the Cathedral. So they're like literally overlaid on one another, right? right? Where like your progress towards this is actually pushing your progress in terms of scoring towards this and the resources you're using are feeding into each other. And just like you said, Jake, everything in that game is sort of over overlaid in terms of how you're scoring points. I think that's the the one thing I'd have to go back and look and see how much the opportunity cost of pursuing different things is affecting what you're doing, but so many things feed other systems in that game, even your own little puzzle that I think it yeah. it
0: it is overlaid. Oh, so this might be an interesting question, but uh Prague to me feels like a game and one of the criticisms that uh, can be made about it is it feels to me like a game where you can kind of do everything. Like if mm. you have a really good session of Praga like you're likely to get all the way to the end of the fridge track and you've also you know got a seal by maxing out your production or two and possibly also made it to the very top of the hunger wall uh, or, or, or close to it. And I feel like games like that that sort of enable you to pop, do almost everything is likely, a, a sign that it could be there's some overlaid objectives going on. Another game like that that I've been playing a lot recently is um, Bonfire, the, the new mm. Stefan Feld game, uh, which similarly feels like you can, when you get to the end of the game, you, you, you can kind of feel like, oh, wow, that was cool. I kind of did everything.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. I think games that do allow you to do sort of everything probably are usually overlaid. Another example of that, and we're I think we're pivoting to examples now and we'll sort of go more concretely and focus on a specific example and explain the game. Um, but another example of what you were just talking about Is I think Seven Wonders, the sort of classic Antoine Bowser game that really incentivizes you to do a little bit of everything. You want a little bit of military. Um, You can get a little bit of science so long as you collect your science scoring cards, all of the same type, or just one set, one of each of the three symbols. Um, You want a few resources, or sometimes there's an incentive to do a few yellows. And I thought a lot about Seven Wonders, leading specifically the original Seven Wonders, leading into this episode, because I was trying to figure out are are science and military juxtaposed in this game? And I really don't think they are. But to your point, Jake, I think it dep- It so much does depend on what the mechanisms let you do. And if they let you do a little bit of everything, then the game does become much more overlaid. Which I think an important point here is that I don't think we can use these three buckets as just sort of like, this game is a solitary objective game. Well, I think usually you that is the bucket. It's either a solitary <laughs> objective game or it is a game that probably has both overlaid and juxtaposed elements. Maybe not. There's, there are probably games where all of the scoring is juxtaposed or all of the scoring is overlaid. But in terms of thinking about this, I, I think it's more likely you find examples that push towards it's either solitary or it can it, it is texturing these different types of scoring objectives on top of each other somewhat.
0: I think that makes sense. And I wonder if, okay, so if you imagine a toy game, where mm-hmm. everything is 100% overlaid, like a hundred, like we're talking 100% on the spectrum. So there's three ways to score, but every time you get one point in one thing, it gives you one point in all the other things, mm-hmm. the other two, then it is a solitary objective sure. game, right? So I think yeah. perhaps solitary is sitting on one end of the spectrum and a hundred percent juxtaposed. Is also on possible the other. on the yep. other end of the spectrum and an overlaid game would be between the two.
1: I think that that's probably right. And I think that's really interesting. And when we're going through these examples, we'll talk about whole systems in games that I think push more towards the juxtaposed or more toward the overlaid end of the spectrum. And I think that a game might emphasize the point scoring more so as pushing them in the juxtaposed system that it has versus the overlaid system or something like that. So the feel of the game might be more to- towards an overlaid objective decision space, but it has elements of both. And I think an totally. awesome example of that is a game we recently covered, which is Cascadia. Do you want to give just a quick summary of Cascadia, Jake?
0: Yeah. Cascadia is a fantastic tile laying games. One of the best games of last year where players are, building out a landscape in an individual board uh, and are scoring functions in two distinct ways. You'll be scoring for your largest contiguous area of same landscapes. So there's, I think, five different landscapes. So you score the largest in each. And you'll also be scoring points for all the animals that you've collected on your board. And those are uh, going to be based on the animal scoring card for that type, which you've set out at the beginning of the game.
1: So I think Cascadia is one of the most illuminating examples that we can use for this because it has these two systems that are overlaid on top of one another. The animal puzzle is is literally overlaid on top of the habitat puzzle that Jake talked about with your terrain, right? You're collecting these habitat tiles that you're slotting in and there's animals printed on them that tell you where you can place animals within the terrain that you're building out and you're getting points for scoring animals and you're getting points for scoring your habitat, your terrain. So I guess not habitat, for your terrain. So the terrain puzzle is overlaid onto the animal puzzle. And then the animals there's five animals in the game and each of them have their own scoring card and progress towards one animal doesn't help you in terms of progress towards another animal if you've played cascadia you're saying wait there's exceptions uh foxes (laughs) and maybe some of the hawk cards and you're right but in general bears uh hawks elk and the salmon in the game don't care about the animals around them they're completely juxtaposed goals where your progress towards one comes at the opportunity cost of another because you only get to take 20 20 animal tiles in the game so there's a limited amount of tiles that you're taking if i'm pursuing bears When I take a bear token and add it to my board, that's a time that I could have taken another token and made progress towards one of these other objectives and didn't. So Cascadia is a game that juxtaposes animal scoring and overlays habitat scoring on top of it. Because what you're really trying to do to score the best in Cascadia is maximize your points in terms of your habitat while also maximizing your points in terms of your animals. And then on top of that, you're trying to pick the right path in terms of animals because they all pay out kind of similarly, but not exactly the same.
0: It's really interesting. And I think that is a great illuminating point because the way you've described overlaid objective scoring in this game, you it functions literally as if you had a transparency, like from an old school yeah. like, projector, uh, like when we were kids, they would have in elementary school where you yep. like literally put the trans you have your tie you know you could pick this game where you have the tiles with nothing printed on and then you stick the transparency over the top that shows what animals can go where it's like literally <laughs> overlaid atop.
1: yeah and i think that that it's so interesting what cascadia does in terms of this because the mo- vast majority of your points in cascadia like it i shouldn't say the vast majority the, the balance is in terms of where your points are coming from, it's roughly, uh, it could vary depending on how you address the puzzle. But I think when people are playing really well, it's roughly 60% or so of your points are coming from animals and roughly 40% or so of your points are coming from your habitat. So it, it just a little bit sort of pushes it in the juxtaposed direction and then it gives you some agency to control how you're getting animal tiles that it doesn't give you in terms of getting habitat tiles. So I love that it gives you this grounding sort of says, okay, first focus on animals and figure out your ha- your habitat. And this isn't even to mention the fact that habitat itself is kind of juxtaposed in a way, which is a whole nother layer. And I think what makes the, concision, the decision space of Cascadia so dynamic and so interesting.
0: Yeah, so I know the point of this whole episode is to like sort of describe, define these, New terms terms for people, but I'm also really interested. And I think our audience will be really interested in like what that means, what it means to the game to have these different types. And I think one of the ways it works so well to create such like satisfying decision space in Cascadia is that like you won't always have the ability to be working towards an overlaid scoring Mm. that helps you right because you'll you'll be forced just based on circumstances to to take a turn that only is helping you in one solitary way uh, or mainly in one solitary way by you know okay i'm making concession here on the animal tile which is not going to really advance my long-term strategy it might give me a a couple of points but it's not advancing my long-term strategy because i need to uh take this tile for the landscape on it And, but when you have those turns where you are able to achieve the multiple, uh, overlaid objectives at the same time, where you get the perfect landscape tile and the perfect animal tile and, or even better, right? Like the, the landscape tile has the animal tile that you need on it and all fits in the right place. Like you have these turns, and perhaps even have two, like the piece can even fit into a place where it's. Uh, Strengthening two landscapes at once Or adding two landscapes at once And all of a sudden it's like You can have these turns It makes a really dynamic range Of how good your turns can feel From just like working towards a single solitary goal To like literally Not even just two birds at once It's like four
1: yeah, the stars all align, and it feels like this really imprinted special moment that you remember because your progress towards all the objectives just seizes at once into one.
0: I yeah. think you, in, it's it's like a bingo moment yeah. in a game that otherwise almost has no business having them.
1: Totally, and I think another interesting thing in terms of explaining how, what this does to, in terms of the decision space from what you said, Eric, which I think is important, is like the habitat puzzle here becomes about raw efficiency because uh, every habitat tile has two habitats printed onto it or it only has one but it's this special type of tile that gives you an extra point if you put the right animal on it so this means every turn out of the 20 turns of cascadia you can be getting two points from your habitat Uh, your habitat max. So it creates this, when you're at a table, this baseline level of efficiency that you need to be achieving to stay in this race in terms of your progress towards having the most of these different types. So you feel this real sense of when you do something really inefficient in terms of your habitat to accommodate maybe being better with your animals and pursuing one of those juxtaposed goals, because they pay off pretty effectively, uh, it can feel terrible because you know you're being highly inefficient not even even just giving up two points just putting a tile out in la la land in a way that it's not going to pro- make progress towards those feels awful because having that overlaid objective forces this level of efficiency that everyone has to keep up with
0: let's move into another example okay can i pick one or do yeah, you want to yeah please wanna... do you pick okay it. so i want to talk about broom service a game we just covered last week if you haven't listened to that episode yet Go back and listen to it. I'm just going to spoil it now. Brendan, I think it's one of the best board game releases of the past 10 years. Yeah, it's an amazing game. It's an amazing game. So what you said when we were defining these terms at the beginning is that uh, juxtaposed scoring, and I hope I'm not misquoting you, can often lead to uh, game stays where you don't want to commit right away you want to kind of leave your options open and that reminded me a lot of our discussion about broom service in the last episode where this game can feel very chaotic and random especially when it's uh, your first time playing or at a larger player count Um, but in reality it becomes a game about trying to keep yourself in a position uh, where you can be dynamic and take advantage of uh your the cards that you've selected in many different ways and in many different orders of sequencing. Yep. I didn't, you know, have the terminology to talk about that at the time, but now I think it's because there's a lot of juxtaposed objectives going on in the game. Uh specifically the fact that you have these individual towers, right? Where you can use your resources. And once you've used a resource in one tower, like that is gone you're not able to use a potion to deliver it to a different tower because it's been used up
1: and on top of that when you are delivering these potions you have to use a card that lets you do that so you're either using a one of the two druids or you're using a witch and using the enhanced version of the witch to be able to deliver it there so in doing that you're not using the weather fairy card which lets you interact with this other primary way that you score points in this game, uh, which are these storm clouds that you're set collecting these lightning bolts on them. So you kind of have to, at some point, the scoring points from the weather fairy and scoring points from potions overall are juxtaposed as well, where, okay, can, I'm going to spend time trying to get further northeast and deliver potions, or I'm going to try to make it to the most efficient locations on the map in terms of Getting using the Weather Fairy to charm away storm clouds that are going to give me more lightning bolts for what I use. And the game does overlay some other pieces onto it. Uh, There's certain gatherer cards that let you collect resources that get you both wands and potions. So those cards maybe push you into doing doing a little bit of both um, of trying to deliver some potions and do some charming way of clouds and you inevitably do do a little bit of both, right. but the game kind of juxtaposes you can go really hard this direction or really hard this direction in some I real would, ways.
0: And I would think too, a lot of times uh, moving is an action that is yeah. able to accomplish or mm. work towards both goals, right? If you're moving into a region that has both a a valuable tower to deliver to, and is adjacent to a nicely valued cloud to add to your collection. Um, In that way, you're achieving two goals at once in a way that's not juxtaposed. But I do have a question. Do you think, and just just to make sure I'm understanding how you're thinking about this correctly, like when you're talking about broom service, thinking just about the potion delivery, like take away the storm clouds. I'm not even thinking about that. Like, Is that one, like, so say you only had that. Like, I don't think it would be a solitary game. To me, it still feels like a game much more leaning on juxtaposed decisions, because even if, like, the one goal in that case would be to get the most points by delivering potions, like, the potion delivery mechanism is, like, inherently juxtaposed because each different power is... Or is like uh, opportunity cost from the other towers in the game that take that same type of potion. What do you think about that?
1: I think that's right. And I think it's right because the different types of towers are presented slightly differently. They offer meaningfully different paths. Um, just in how they exist, how they're spread throughout the board, what they also give you, the terrains that they're in. I think they do represent real different juxtaposing paths. I think an example that we can pivot to that might be kind of similar to what you're talking about, but I want to make the argument is a solitary objective game is Renner Canizia's Modern Art. So Modern Art is a game that says have the most points or have the most money at the game end and you use money to buy the the opportunity to get more money in the future by buying and selling these paintings. Um, the real tension in the system, in my mind, doesn't come from the scoring objective, right? It doesn't come from have the most money at the end of the game. It's interesting to use your money to make more money, to to spend money to buy paintings to sell it for more, but that's not creating real tension because if that was all that was in the puzzle, that's not a very interesting puzzle. It's just spend less money than other people to buy more valuable things. But because there's this system where only the most purchased uh, paintings or most sold paintings in a round end up being worth money, that's where the real tension comes into the system. And there are five different artists in the game uh, that you're buying and selling their paintings of. But I think that they don't represent a meaningfully different path in the way that a lot of strategy games offer meaningfully different paths that create different amounts of opportunity costs and risk and inertia towards that goal. It's very easy to switch between these few objectives such that you really only feel like you have that one core objective that's driving you. It's not like in say Cascadia where I'm really focused on bears. Maybe in a round of modern art, I'm really focused on this objective right now, but it's um, transitory to me. It's not actually motivating what I'm doing in so much as right now, it's the best thing that I can be doing in pursuing that one solitary goal. Does that make sense, Jake?
0: Yeah, it is. It's really interesting, and I am struggling a little bit to understand why it's different than the broom service example we just talked about. And what I think is the reason for it is is that like in modern art, every single it's been a while since I played this game. So, correct me if I'm wrong. But as I remember, it's like every single art piece of art is the same. At the onset, right? It's just like yep. a piece by this artist, and the value of it changes over the course of the game based on like who's bought what uh, or how much of that piece of art has been purchased. But like inherently, each single piece of art functions the exact same way. Whereas in room service, the towers and the potion delivery don't all function the same as each other right i could deliver a purple potion to a tower in the beginning space to get four points or i could deliver a purple potion to a tower in a far reach of the board to get 10 points
1: yep and what you're doing to get those uh potions to deliver them in the first place is meaningfully different i think right uh so if you've never played broom service to get potions you have to first uh gather them so you have to use these three different gatherer cards uh the Uh, root gatherer the herb gatherer and the fruit gatherer all of which are these subtle variations on take a potion of a specific color but i think meaningfully push you down slightly different strategic paths and give you slightly different amounts of risk that change which objectives matter the most to you by the end of the game
0: whereas in modern art you still have an opportunity cost of course of purchasing a piece of art which is that you'll have less money to spend on a different piece of art later in the round It's still solitary because it's just all the exact same art. I think so, and the some
1: people right now are maybe saying the artists get completely changed though. Brendan and Jake, one artist becomes very valuable by the end of the game versus others being less valuable. And yes, that is true, and you can jockey for it some. But I, I really don't. You don't start this game and sort of say, okay, based on my my position. You might say, I'm going to try to make these artists really valuable, but it's not a different strategy in terms of what you're pursuing. It's just pushing certain uh, certain ways to score points slightly more, but they're all the same way to score points. The objective is still to get the same. The tension is, comes from the uncertainty.
0: I think one sign of juxtaposed scoring is a game that you can sit down and say, like, this time I'm going to try this path, or I'm going to focus on this strategy. And you can't really do that in Modern Art. Whereas in Broom Service, you absolutely can say, like, this game I'm heading to the far south east side of the board, and I'm going there, and they have this type of towers over here, and I'm focusing on that. And you could decide that on the start of the game and pursue it, where you can't say, like, I'm going for this and, and be successful. You can't just say, like, I'm just going to only by this person's art no matter what this game.
1: Totally. I think that's pivot to another example that I think a lot of people might know, which is Welcome To. We talked about it earlier. So Welcome To is a lot of different way to score points. This is a roll and write game or flip and write game where you're pairing a number, which is you're going to assign to your row of houses in ascending order and also an effect that goes with that number every turn you're offered a decision based on what you're going to add and you're trying to accomplish a bunch of different scoring objectives at once so you're trying to create groupings of houses uh, you're also trying to get these pools and you're trying to get these parks and you're trying to do a few other things but those are the core examples i want to talk about so you're whenever you take a, a number associated with a pool or a park You can add that anywhere in your rows and if it's in a specific row you get to fill in a pool or a park in that row and you're just trying to collect multiple pools and parks in certain parks are in rows pools are just in general across everything um so these are juxtaposed when you take pools you're not taking a park in terms of your opportunity cost right my my progress towards pursuing pools comes directly at my opportunity cost expense of pursuing parks um, in playing welcome to, you try to do parks and you try to do pools, but at the end of the day, your, your pursuit of pools comes at your, uh, your ability to do parks. And there's a certain amount of randomness where maybe the pools never come out at the same time as parks. And in, in those games things end up being a little bit more overlaid.
0: Yeah. But, but I don't think that matters, right? Yeah. Like for the, this discussion, right? Okay. We're talking about, you know, the opportunity cost is a term, yes. it, you know, and whether there's a different park out there or not like taking a pool is at the opportunity cost of a different feature. Objective, except for
1: with the groupings of houses, right? Because when you add a pool or a park to your row, you're filling in a number. um, And that number can be used to create these differently sized groupings of houses that you can increase the point value of. So maybe you're trying to get um, lots of groups of three houses all together in a row. So you're pursuing of pools and parks, those juxtapose objectives, are overlaid onto this grouping of houses puzzle.
0: Yeah. No, I think that's a a really fantastic example of a game that, like Cascadia, right, has literally an... Like, you can almost imagine this game of Welcome To uh, as a level one of just the houses puzzle. Mm. and you could literally play it that way. Yeah. Um, And it would probably be a pretty fun little, much simpler game Uh, And then you've got a transparent sheet and you slap it on top and there, boom, you've got pools, you've got parks popping up. uh, And and now you have literally, you know, added these extra features to the game.
1: And I think the path towards games creating really interesting decisions, um, especially lighter games, simpler games like Welcome to, I think you can unlock a lot of interesting decisions when you overlay a puzzle on top of a juxtaposed objective structure. So when you have these multiple goals that you're considering all at once, then things become fuzzy in a way that the decisions become really interesting. Whereas when you just have the pools and parks puzzle, like what Jake is saying, right? If you you can play the, we're just playing the grouping of houses games. It's a little bit less interesting to just play the pools and parks game on its own. It's,
0: yeah, it's almost like the, the just houses game is basically quicks.
1: Sure, and the just pools and parks game is just pick one and then do that, and you're just going to pick whichever one gives more points. Um, it is
0: interesting, I think, because it's like an inverse of cascading. No, it's not. Yeah, so ca- in both cases, you've got the the base game. You've have, you've have a juxtaposed puzzle being overlaid on top of a base game. Yeah. So yeah. the overlaid portion of I'm starting to get it. Okay. So cool. the overlaid part of objective is the fact that like that base game functions at the same time as these juxtaposed scoring conditions. Uh, And it works the exact same way in both welcome to and Cascadia.
1: I think that that's stay in roll and write land. Let's go to another popular roll and write. We've, covered a lot of these games on our show too so if we're talking about one of these games and it intrigues you feel free to look up an episode in the the game in our feed and you might find an episode on it and one of those games cartographers we just covered so cartographers is another roll and write game where you're trying to create different arrangements of terrain and when jake and i covered this game we felt like and now i have language for this that the game was uh put too much of an emphasis on juxtaposed scoring objectives and what i mean by this is the terrain scoring in that game is typically juxtaposed so when you're scoring forest you're primarily only doing that with by looking at your forest puzzle and it comes at the direct opportunity cost of building maybe a mountain or not a mountain a house or building water or planes and it does over... So those goals are completely juxtaposed. Scoring one of those comes at the direct expense of another, and it's hard to know which one you should be pursuing based on how the card's come in on that game. There are overlaid objectives in, in cartographers. And for me, these are where the most fun decisions come from. There are scoring cards that tell you what shape you should be putting your terrain into. So those get overlaid over the other terrain puzzles that are completely juxtaposed, right? And then you also have the mountains and gold puzzle, where every time you surround a mountain, you gain a gold, and gold are worth the amount of victory points that there are rounds left in the game. Um, so that's another way in which it overlays scoring objectives onto the terrain scoring that's juxtap- juxtaposed. And for me, this is an example of the game that pushes. I li- I really like cartographers, but I think if it pushed the if it turned the overlaid knob up slightly. I would like it even more. It's just emphasizing the juxtaposed side of its decisions a little bit too much for me in terms of my inability to pick which path I go down doesn't support the juxtaposed nature of that decision space as well as I wish it did.
0: I think it's really interesting the way you describe overlaid there is almost like, like turning up the knob on that. It, it almost uh, seems like what you're referring to is like the weight of scoring because in cartographers like the weight of scoring is so heavily on the side of the juxtaposed objectives like yep you can get covering up mountains can give you each mountain you cover could give you like a maximum of four points which is just and that's be that's only if you can cover them in the very first round of the game uh which takes a lot of effort uh so it's, it's just not that substantial and so i'm just struck by the fact that like You could have a game that would feel much more overlaid without changing anything about the game and how it plays, besides like the weight of that. Like, if you just even like increased the amount of points you got from mountains, or you did a patchwork thing where you just said like every empty tile at the end of the game is minus one points, like all of a sudden, that game, even though the rules, outside of scoring stay exactly the same you know it feels much more of like an overlaid game or you know down the middle like some of these other games that we've talked about like welcome to and cascadia so i think that just brings us back to the very top where like at the end of the day you know this is really a, a discussion of like objectives which is like the game telling you what to focus on
1: Totally. Which is full circle with the reiner C Tai win little exactly. segment that we read at the beginning. Yeah. I think I one example I'd love to talk about now that I think is a really important example in terms of talking about going down specific paths and flexibility being what becomes interesting in juxtaposed decision spaces. Um, and that's uh, Race for the Galaxy, Tom Lehman's game. And interestingly, ta- Race for the Galaxy just says have the most points at the end of the game, right? But that doesn't tell us much about the actual objectives of the game because if you just looked at games that way, most games that we cover on the show even just have that goal. And it really gives the players the objectives in two separate ways by giving you end game conditions. Uh, You can either end the game by having 12 or more cards in your tableau at the end of the game, or you can end the game by running out of victory points. And these two end game conditions create this this anchoring for the whole game and all the decisions that you make. Am I trying to push the end of the game by being the person who has the most points at the end by the time I or someone else has 12 cards down? Or am I trying to end the game by being the person who has the most points when someone ends the game by having the most victory points uh, when the victory point tokens run out? And those two different anchoring points filter all of your decisions. And Race for the Galaxy wouldn't be that interesting if it was just go down this path where you are trying to rush the end of the game as quickly as possible, or just go down this path where you want to have the most victory points when the victory points run out. Because... I think it would force you down these paths so specifically that the decisions about what cards you're taking with the card-sifting mechanic become less interesting. You're sort of saying, this one works, this one doesn't. But race becomes interesting because it juxtaposes these two things, and then it puts so many paths in the middle where you can play these hybrid strategies where maybe you you start off going in this direction, but then you switch to this other, this other pursuit of this other goal. And I think switching costs are important in terms of which objective you're going towards.
0: That's a really interesting one. I'm not sure I agree with you though okay because i think that for me where juxtapose objectives come in in race for the galaxy more and i agree with you it's not i I would say like there certainly are it feels very juxtaposed like when you're taking a turn everything you do it feels like pulling teeth because it's at expense of of some other strategy because you're literally having to discard cards as resource yeah and i think resources excuse me And I think, like, what makes it feel more juxtaposed isn't necessarily the endgame conditions and there being two different endgame conditions. It's that, like, you're sort of giving yourself your own objectives based on Mm. the cards you play out. You're kind of, like, creating a new pass. I think a big way that comes in are the six-cost developments that tell you a new way to score points, Um, right? So you could play a development that gives you a point for every uh you know rare element uh, rare mineral worlds i can't remember what it's called sure 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 or you could get a uh uh right basically anything in the game there's a six cost development that gives you that can military. Give you points for it yeah, yeah, yeah you can get points for how much your military is or points for how, however many of your worlds have upgrades to uh where that allow you to sell resources sure and so as you play the game, like you're, even if the game itself is saying like, just get the most points, your path will evolve to a point where you have more and less valuable, or I guess I should say like efficient ways of getting points. Mm. So I'm not really sure how that fits in, it fits in with this conversation, but I do think it's a really interesting example. I think that for me, it probably pushes it slightly more towards.
1: It's tough. Races, a lot of games don't necessarily map completely neatly. But I think the fact that race forces you to pick a path, right? When you have that card in your hand that is the six cost development that says you're going to get victory points for every military that you have, and you're juxtaposing it with another scoring opportunity in your hand, playing that six cost development is expensive. You have to discard a lot of cards to be able to get it on the table. So it's not like you can play this card and this card. And there is a little bit of overlaying the rest of your tableau over these scoring objectives. But I think that's why we're saying maybe that it's pushed more towards the juxtaposed side because it does want you to pick a path. It does want you to navigate through the decision space and eventually commit to something and make and that even,
0: work. I think another uh, key element for race is that at the beginning of the game, you have to pick a starting world out of two. Yeah. And, and even in that decision, you know, if you pick a starting world that gives you uh one military uh power to start with or or you know you pick a world that gives you like a good exchange rate for the blue resources or whatever uh you're already the game is already telling you right it's like signposting it's saying like pick a path uh and, and and start pursuing that not that you have to stick with it the whole game as you're saying of course you can like adjust and change um but there is the opportunity cost of that and i think like perhaps more than anything else it's just the fact that like yes the and the goal is to have the most points at the end of the game but points come in so many different ways and every single thing is inherently juxtaposed against every other thing by the fact that like you're discarding cards that could give you that that is like literally a different opportunity to get points to put down anything totally awesome
1: yeah no definitely Okay, I want to pivot to a solitary example in board games. Okay. This one excites me. Um, This is the base resistance. Just regular the resistance. You have a solitary goal. Win three rounds with your team if you're the resistance or prevent the resistance from winning three rounds if you're the spice. Um, I think that this is a perfect example of how a solitary goal can... Focus the players' direction, but not be the source of tension in a game. The source of tension in the resistance comes from the fact that there's two different groups of players who are pursuing different solitary goals. Right? They're they're directly at odds with another one another because the resistance players have to win three rounds, and the spies have to win three rounds. So the tension comes not from the fact that winning three rounds is an interesting objective juxtaposed with a different interesting objective. It comes from the fact that when you're playing the resistance, you have a solitary objective in which you're in direct conflict with pursuing that solitary objective with another group of flares playing the same game, pursuing their own solitary objective that's at odds with that. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I think uh, the resistance is such an awesome example of a solitary objective that still creates like... Just an incredibly rich and engaging gameplay. I, yeah. I think uh, I know you didn't describe it this way, but like, and you know, anybody who's familiar with chess, right, would would know this. But solitary objective sounds like it could be something that is like a little bit more basic or like rudimentary, rudim- rudimentary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. rudimentary. <laughs> Why does that word sound so weird to me right now? Uh, but you know. I think with, with so many of these lenses we're talking about, like there's, there's nothing here that is like a value judgment. No, perhaps totally. it's, perhaps it's possible that uh, you might find yourself having a, a taste for different, different games uh, based on some of these things. Like, Oh, I really like games where I have many different paths to explore. It's like, okay, well maybe uh, that means like these more juxtaposed scoring systems appeal to you. Um, but, you know, they're, you know, there's nothing about these that make anything like more or less complicated or inherently better or worse. And I think like the resistance is such a great example of that. Uh, and if anything could be said for these games, is like probably easier to bring a new or like a new gamer or somebody less familiar with board games into a game uh, that is solitary because it's going to map better with games that they've played before whether as like a kid or uh you know in sports or or anything yeah
1: that's it's really interesting i saw i was trying to teach my mom the fox in the forest um the fox in the forest is a trick-taking game where you're either trying to win a bunch of tricks or you're trying to lose basically all the tricks you just don't want to win them you can lose up to three um so it juxtaposes these two paths to you. you get your hand of 13 cards um i think it's 13 and then you are trying to decide as you're playing out each round of this trick taking game do i have a hand that's trying to win tricks in this game or lose tricks and these two juxtaposed scoring objectives um i think are awesome but it made it tough for my mom to necessarily grok the game at first just because i think she was trying to like jump through that mental hurdle of what is my objective am i doing this or am i doing this Um, And when do I do this? And when do I do this? And that's part of the fun of the Fox in the Forest is like learning how to grok that puzzle and seeing a hand, playing the first three hands and sort of saying like, okay, I know. And I know before Jake knows that I'm gonna gonna lose all the tricks in this round and he's really in for some trouble. Um, But also at the same time, the Fox in the Forest is a good example of where you don't necessarily want to fully commit until you have to commit, right? If you go too hard and you start winning a bunch of tricks early on, Four, five, six tricks all of a sudden that can really get away from you, and you can end up in that part of the scoring objectives where you've won ten of the tricks and you're scoring zero one point, zero points for it you're greedy and you're you're not going to get rewarded at all, and I think that's a great example of where these juxtaposed paths really make the game
0: spark totally I think like I honestly think we've done a really good job explaining what these are and the difference okay. between them, but I'm the thing that's like interesting to me is okay so what like what does this mean for us as board gamers Mm. and I think what you're speaking to is one really valuable way this helps is helpful Uh, and I think it's something I'm going to be thinking about right away after having this conversation and where I think it really matters a lot is in the teach of a game Mm. and I think that's something I've done that trips people up in the past Potentially, is like, I'll explain a game, and say, like, okay, here's what we're trying to do with the game. Uh, at the, you know, we're, uh, building out estates in Burgundy, and at the end of the game, whoever has the most points wins. You know, like, as if that sure. is like a good. You're so zoomed out. Right. Like, as if that is like a good explanation of the game like as if that is like analogous to basketball or sure. football or baseball. Yeah. At the end of the game, yeah, whoever has the most points wins, uh, you know, and, he, and he, because that's, it's not really going to, if the game has juxtaposed or overlaid scoring systems. It's not going to map onto somebody who's brand new to games, understanding of how games function. And I think like, There might be, as you're talking about, like this fox in the forest example, if you say, like, okay, here's the game, you just want to score the most points at the end of three rounds. uh, And then you're like, you score points by winning a lot of tricks or by like losing a lot of tricks. Like all of a sudden, there's like significant dissonance there between like what you just said about scoring points and whatnot. So I think moving forward, even if it's true, whoever scores the most points at the end of the game wins, I think it can be really helpful to call attention to where objectives are overlaid and where objectives are juxtaposed uh, at the onset to, to help get people into the game.
1: I think especially if you're playing with a group where they're open to some strategic direction through their decision space too, so, so, of playing a game, using the word, you're trying to do this or that in this game, or you're trying to do this and that in this game, right? Where the this or that is the juxtaposed tip off. Uh, in the Fox in the Forest, you're trying to win tricks or lose tricks in the castles of burgundy you're trying to score points by doing this and that um castles of burgundy is kind of an interesting example but a lot of like heavy strategic heroes offer these overlay decision spaces right in the lost ruins of arnak you're trying to explore uh explore the board but you're all and you're trying to get up the temple track that game is an interesting case study because it kind of presents itself as a juxtaposed decision space when really it's overlaid and i think getting over the hurdle of that game being interesting to people is they come in with this mindset that like oh this is a juxtaposed game i'm going to explore or i'm going to get up the temple track when actually the scoring objectives once you play the game enough you realize no i have to do this and that and figure yeah. out the most efficient way to do both it's truly an overlaid puzzle
0: right like how can i uh use my exploration to get up this temple drive. yes
1: yeah yeah totally i think also too it just gives you a framework to think about how you're going to accomplish objectives in the game before you even play it right so if you're someone who's listening not because you're interested in games generally or because you want a new way to think about games but you just want to play games better i think if you sit back and you sort of say okay are the objectives juxtaposed here or are they overlaid because if they're overlaid you need to think more about how you can make every action as efficient as possible towards all of your potential objectives and if they're juxtaposed you need to figure out what the most efficient path from your position is and those sound like the same thing and they are but they're slightly different right And one example that I'm going to give, and I promise it's the last game I'll talk about, well, maybe not, but probably, is Babylonia, a game that you have not played, Jake, but this is a Reiner-Kanitsi game, and it juxtaposes these three primary ways to score goals. You can play your your tiles next to ziggurats, which scores you points. You can surround cities, which scores you points, or you can claim farms, which score you points. And these are all, especially early on in the game, really juxtapose scoring objectives. You're going to do this, or you're going to do that. But as the game goes on, you have the potential to connect these chains of tiles. And the second that those tiles become connected, or if they would ever become connected, if they would never become connected, then those are just completely juxtaposed decisions. And the game can play out that way. But if there's the potential for you to connect these different pieces, to to tie your progress together by laying your tiles out, instantly the game goes from juxtaposed to overlaid. So Babylonia is a game where the, it's the tension between is this game going to be a game that is more focused on juxtaposed goals or is this going to be a game that is more focused on overlaying those goals? And I think that's so fascinating, a game that could be either one of those two things and it's about the tension of where is it going to end up?
0: Uh, it, okay, so I'll end with one other example. This is just because I was playing this last night uh, with my mom and sister who are coming through St. Louis. And we, I broke out Rolling Realms, uh, another another roll and write game, which seems to be like a really helpful uh, framework. example for, yeah. framework for the, for this lens. Uh, and Rolling Realms fits in here really interestingly because it has each game you're, you're drawing out three different. So it's a roll and write game uh, where you write it with a uh, dry erase marker, like right onto the the laminated cards uh, or the you know the the cards yeah. are that type of material you can erase off of. Um, so for each game you draw out three cards so you have like these literal like juxtaposed cards and the main mechanism of the game is you roll two dice and everybody takes uses one of the die to write on one of their three worlds and the other die to write on a different world Uh, so you can never write on the same world twice Mm. so you like literally have Right in, right there, like it could not be more juxtaposed. Uh, you have this different, you have a puzzle on world one, puzzle on world two, and a puzzle on world three. Uh, however, the game becomes overlay is overlaid in a very interesting way, uh, with shared resources. So all of the different worlds give you a, the potential to earn a, a three different types of resources coins, pumpkins, and hearts. And then you also have, you have like a little menu. Of special abilities, it's like when you collect uh, two hearts, you could do this. If you have three hearts, mm. you could do this. If you have two pumpkins, you could do this. If you have three pumpkins, you, you could. The three pumpkins one allows you to like break the rule about you drawing on the same world twice in a round. Uh, and and coins do different things as well. So you have this overlaid on top of it. You have this uh, resource collection, uh, which allows you to uh, interact across all three boards. In in a really fun and engaging way. So, uh, you know, I think I think that, too, is is a really great example uh, where you have this like incredibly distinct objective space um, that work that kind of comes together as a really, really nice package. Yeah, that's awesome. I feel like I've heard you talk about Rolling Realms in the past and I feel like I
1: understand it best right now. Like that just (laughs) made me understand the framework for thinking about the game really effectively. Uh, So thank you for that. That's cool. So
0: points for this as being a helpful lens for helping to, I mean, and also maybe that is another thing that this will be really helpful for is like helping convey to people game ideas, how games play and work Mm -hmm. and function. And I mean, just to be totally frank, I think that's probably been our biggest challenge with this podcast, which is that like we've got i mean we've overwhelmingly people have given us like really positive feedback. Thank you so much for that. By the way, we are always on the lookout for people who'd be willing to write us a review and rate the show on iTunes that seems to more than anything else uh really give us a boost in in the number of eyeballs that uh our our show gets in front of on you know itunes and spotify and and wherever else Uh, so if you want to do that we would be eternally grateful um but so we've gotten really good feedback but i think like people seem to really love it when we talk about games that they know and have played uh they like the discussion topics and then sometimes uh where people can bounce off of it it, are the episodes where we're talking about games that people aren't familiar as familiar with they haven't played uh, so, you know, you do the amaz- an amazing job every week of recording a very brief rules overview, but, you know, that's not always always enough for everybody. So we're always looking for uh, new ways that we can help do a better job of conveying games to people in a way that's not just like us spending 15 minutes talking about rules. So I think, yeah. you know, if this helps in that way, uh, we're definitely going to try it moving forward uh, and see how it works. So, you know, if, if that is something that ends up helping you to like really kind of grok the games and the discussions we're talking about, please let us know um, because you know, fingers crossed, this this can this can be a helpful tool to use. Definitely. And
1: if you have ideas, if you have games that you you think are a really good example of one of these lenses, or maybe multiple of them, if you just want to discuss this episode generally, you should come into our Discord. Uh, We share a link to it in our show notes every single week. And Discord is just sort of an online chat room you can join from any internet browser. Uh, And in this instance, the Decision Space Discord is one where you can talk about awesome games with awesome people, uh, and also find games People to play games online at board game arena and other websites with if you're interested in that as well um,
0: tell I, us how you tell us if you think this lens is useful or beneficial and how you're gonna use it yes. i think that's what i'm dying to know that would be awesome
1: pre planners those of you who play games ahead with us and try to prepare for upcoming episodes you should know that we are covering a feast for odin next week play that on board game arena Then we are covering Tigris and Euphrates and Great Western Trail in some order to be disclosed. Both of those games are also available on Board Game Arena in alpha. Sorry if you don't have access, but if you want access one day, you could come and talk to people who do have access in our Discord.
0: Oh, dude, there's something in my beer. I was like, that was like,
1: Like maybe some
0: kind of like hop or yeast? Those are like yeast. yeah, yeah, I don't okay. know. Fingers if you crossed. saw me just like drooling all over myself, that's what was, happening. Yeah,
1: I was a little concerned.
0: <laughs> <laughs> if you're also concerned about Jake, uh,
1: or just think his opinions are concerning, and you want to tell him about that, you can find us on Twitter. You can find myself at Burnside BH, Jake at Jake F-R-Y-D. Ask him if. It was yeast hops or something else in the beer. Uh, and you can find our show. I don't
0: know. I can already tell you. I don't (laughs)
1: know. At decision spa. That's decision SBA. Um, yeah, with that, I think that's another episode of decision space in the books. I thank you. If you've made it this far, thank you to Hembry for letting us use their hit, uh, song reach out as our intro and outro. And I'm really looking forward to continuing this conversation with y'all. Uh, Online and also for next week's episode. Jake, I, I hope you have a good one.
0: Yeah, have a good one. I applaud you, Brendan, for putting this framework together nicely done. Thank you. We'll see you all next week. Bye.